surgeons are using very small instruments. The shafts of the instruments are 5 to 12 millimeters in diameter. So five milli- uh, they're 25 millimeters in an inch, so about a, uh, less than a quarter of an inch in diameter. Um, and there are several tiny incisions that are made, and then a lapros- an incision for a laparoscope is made. So um, here's the laparoscope. On the tip of the laparoscope, there's a camera and a light source. And the surgeon then um, uses these instruments with handles out here and is watching on the TV monitor what's going on inside the abdomen. The abdomen is typically um, inflated with CO2 to give some more working space. So um, the um, instruments that are used in laparoscopy, the tooltips on them look something like this. There are many, many different instruments that are used, and a lot of them are um, variations on kind of grasping instruments or scissor type of instruments. So we were interested in the design of these instruments for minimally invasive surgery. So we did a study at Hershey Medical Center looking at um, different laparoscopic procedures and how the instruments are used in those procedures. So this is a cholecystectomy or a gallbladder removal. And these um, green ovals here represent the different instruments that are used in a gallbladder removal. So you can see things here like a scissors. A clipper is um, basically a device that applies a surgical clip or like a stapler. Um, A curved dissector, which is like a forceps, and so on. Then the arrows indicate instrument exchanges. So, so the surgeon may be using the scissors, for example, and then would withdraw it from the incision and exchange it for another instrument, depending on what's needed at that time. And this um, exchange of instruments happens quite frequently, as you can see from our diagram here, And the total time that it takes to exchange instruments actually makes up a big chunk of the procedure time in the OR. It's up to one-third of the procedure time is just um, withdrawing and inserting new instruments. So um, this exchange of instruments not only adds to the time on the procedure, but it can also kind of disrupt the surgeon's flow and train of thought. In addition to that, there's always a risk of inadvertently injuring some tissue upon um, withdrawing or inserting a new instrument. So one of the things we were interested in is could we design um, combination instruments, or we call them multifunctional, so like a two-in-one or three-in-one kind of instrument, to help us reduce these instrument exchanges. So we used the results of this study um, to help us identify sort of promising candidates for these multifunctional instruments. So, for example, you can see here the scissors is exchanged for a curved dissector 18 times, for a clipper 27 times, and back to the scissors 26 times. So this would be a good candidate for a, a combination or multifunctional instrument. This scissors curved dissector is one that we decided to focus on um, initially because that was something that we thought we we could probably do. (laughs) Um, Another interesting thing that we found in the study is um, not only are these patterns of instrument exchanges there, but surgeons get really creative. They use instruments for tasks other than what they were designed for. So... And one of the reasons is to avoid having to change out the instrument. So, for example, a surgeon might use a forceps, which is designed to sort of grasp tissue like this. They might use that as a blunt dissector, where we close the jaws and use it to sort of poke at and scrape tissue, um, just for to avoid the inconvenience of having to switch it out for a blunt dissector. And they really get creative on how they um, use different instruments for tasks that they were not designed to be used for. So here's one of the devices that we've designed, and we built a simple prototype. 
This is a combination forceps and scissors. So it works like this. We have this sort of um, Y-shaped design. And um, one of the key features of this design is that it's what's called a compliant mechanism. So um, if you think about your um, pair of scissors, your pair of scissors consists of a couple of, we call them links, joined by a little hinge joint, right? And um, you can design a mechanism without any hinge joints by using the flexibility or compliance of the material instead. And this becomes really important when we think about making very, very small devices because it becomes really difficult to actually manufacture and assemble little pieces and links and hinge joints together. So this design is a compliant mechanism. It's all one piece. And it's a 2D type of design, so we can manufacture it out of just a flat plate of material. Um, but we can get 3D kind of motion out of it. So it works like this. My tips of my forceps here just come together like this by moving this um, tube forward. Once they're closed, so that's my forceps. Once they're closed, I twist the tube and I get a scissoring or a shearing on the tool tips. So let me show you the little video here. You'll see, this is five millimeters in diameter. The question was how large. So you'll see the scissors make a little cut. This is actually a hard-boiled egg membrane. And then the forceps grab that and peel it back. Hard-boiled egg membrane is actually used by manufacturers of ophthalmic instruments, so instruments that are used in surgery in the eye, because a membrane of a hard-boiled egg is similar to the human retina. So they actually use um, high-tech things like a hard-boiled egg membrane and wet Kleenex to, <laughs> to test out their instruments. Um, I can show this video one more time. You'll see the uh, scissors make a little cut, and then we flip it around and can peel back the um, egg membrane there for a forceps type motion there. So uh, this is my uh, collaborator, Dr. Randy Halleck. He is a general surgeon. He is the chief of minimally invasive surgery at Penn State's Hershey Medical Center. So um, he, does, he does gallbladder removals for a living, basically. Um, but uh, we work with Randy in our um, instrument design procedure to help us decide on sort of appropriate geometry for the tooltips. And then we build our prototypes and Randy tries them out in his lab. Randy has a surgical simulation lab at Hershey where um, surgeons actually work with these, this is called a box trainer. They work with these trainers to actually learn how to do laparoscopic surgery. There's um, a whole new set of hand-eye coordination skills that are required to do this kind of surgery. And um, if you've played a lot of video games, you're better at it than uh, <laughs> those of us who haven't played a lot of video games. But anyway, um, what Randy then will take our prototypes and try them out in his surgical simulator and give us his feedback on the designs. And then we then use that to improve our designs. So this is um, a photo of inside the, uh, the box here. This is one of our, our other compliant mechanism multifunctional devices. And in grasper and scissor mode here, you can see it's made little cuts in the, in the paper there. So this um, is a kind of standard size that's used in laparoscopic surgery, which is five millimeter diameter size. Now, another area uh, of surgery that we've become interested in recently is an area called NOTES. NOTES is natural orifice transluminal endoscopic surgery. Um, NOTES is a, they're calling it the next revolution in surgery. Some people are calling it incisionless surgery. So 
Um, if you've probably, a lot of us have had our colonoscopy. Um, if you've had your colonoscopy, you've had an endoscopic procedure uh, using a natural orifice. Um, endoscopic <laughs> procedures today are commonly used, but they're mostly used for diagnostic procedures. So, for example, you have your colonoscopy. You might be able to, um, you know, if the doctor sees something there, snip a little polyp um, from your colon. Or let's say you have a bleeding ulcer in your stomach that an endoscope could be placed um, into your stomach and take a look at the bleeding ulcer. But um, what has not yet really been done is to be able to do surgical procedures through these flexible endoscopes. So the way um, this notes idea works is the endoscope would be inserted into the mouth, down the esophagus, into the stomach, and incision is made in the stomach wall, and the endoscope goes out through the stomach wall into the abdomen. And then you can do your gallbladder removal, your appendectomy, or whatever it is you need to do in your um, abdomen. So here's what the tip of the endoscope looks like here. There's what's called a working channel. The surgical instrument then is snaked all the way through the endoscope, through the working channel here. On the tip, I have also a camera and a light source. So it's the same type of idea where the surgeon is watching on a TV monitor, and they're sort of guiding the endoscope with their hand. The surgical instrument is inserted here in this accessory channel or insertion tube. It has to be snaked all the way through the flexible endoscope, which is about a meter, about a yard long, and, um, and then out the working channel. So standard endoscopes today use working channels that are anywhere from two to six millimeters in diameter. So again, we're talking about a quarter of an inch or smaller here. Um, but there's really a need with this new field of notes for a whole new set of instrumentation because um, what's available now is really only for diagnostic type of procedures. So that's where we come in, the engineers come in. Um, we are looking at right now developing not only new instrument designs, but new materials and fabrication processes for those instruments. So um, as this field of notes develops, um, there's going to be a need for smaller and smaller instruments. So one of the ideas with notes is we could use uh, an endoscope with more than one working channel. So we've got more than one instrument down there. And um, this is really important, this idea of using multiple instruments and instrument exchanges is even more important in notes than it is in laparoscopy because I've got to snake my instrument through this meter-long endoscope down the esophagus, through the stomach, and whatever el wherever else it is in the abdomen every time I want to switch out an instrument. Um, and these are also very small. If I want to use a scope that's um, this diameter, so... Um, the, the endoscopes vary in diameter, but roughly half an inch, say, in diameter, then I need my instruments to be roughly a millimeter in diameter. Um, so um, this idea of then compliant mechanisms becomes really important for the devices this small. Because smaller than a millimeter, I can't use hinged mechanisms. It's, it's really impossible to make with today's um, manufacturing techniques, it's impossible to make parts that small and assemble them together. It also becomes important for sterilization if I'm going to reuse these things, so I have to clean them after they're used and sterilize them for the next procedure. Hinged mechanisms actually have to be disassembled and cleaned out with little brushes and then reassembled. So um, we are working on right now developing these designs and the materials and manufacturing processes, as I said. Um, here's a schematic of a process that um, my collaborator, Dr. Jim Adair, he's in the material science department here at Penn State, is developing for these um, 
sub-millimeter-sized surgical instruments. And I'll just give you a quick overview here. Um, this process uses a process called photolithography. Photolithography has been around for a while for making micro-devices. And the, w the way it works is um, I use a photosensitive material and I place a mask over my photosensitive material. I expose the mask to light, and the parts that are not covered by the mask are developed away, and I'm left with um, uh, my photo, it's called photoresist material here, and then some cavities here. So we're using this photolithography process, though, not to make our parts, but to make molds for the parts. And then this is where the kind of novel aspect of this project comes in. We take these molds and then fill them with a suspension of a ceramic material with very, very tiny particles. And I'll talk about that more in a second. And then I um, take my filled molds, I center them, so basically I bake them in an oven, and my mold material burns away, and my ceramic material then hardens up and strengthens up, and I'm left with freestanding parts. I can make thousands of parts at a time using this process very inexpensively and quickly. So um, in parallel to this effort where we're working on this new fabrication process, we are working on the design aspect, and we are um, accounting for the limitations of the manufacturing process in our design uh, procedure. So here's our microforceps design. This works similarly to the design that I showed you before, where I move this green tube or sheath forward and my tips come together here. I can show you this little animation here. Um, this is finite element analysis, so as I move my sheath forward, you can see this thing moving down, the tip moving down. And um, we, are, we do a lot of finite element analysis in my lab, and what that is is a computer simulation that predicts how my compliant mechanism is going to deform and how much stress is induced in my compliant mechanism as I deform it. This idea of being able to predict the stress distribution is really important um, for these compliant devices because if the stresses become too large, it will break, right? And um, this is very important when I'm thinking about using a ceramic material. Ceramic is a brittle material, so we have brittle or catastrophic failure, we call it, um, which is not good if we have our tooltip break off inside the human body, right? <laughs> so... Um, we can take this into account in our design process by using a stress limit. So we design these things such that the allowable stress for the material is never exceeded. And um, we have an, another um, unique feature to this design. We have this sort of gap in between here. And what happens is, as I move my green sheath forward, eventually these surfaces come into contact. So my plot here shows the stress. It increases, 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 as you would expect. As I deform it more, my stress is increasing. But when it comes into contact, it actually goes back down. We call this stress relief. And this is important because if I did not have the stress relief, I would have to stop here, right? because my stress limit here is about at this line. So because I get the stress relief, I can continue to deform it even more, which allows me to get a bigger opening on my compliant mechanism. That's important for a forceps kind of device because I want to be able to get a, as big of a bite of tissue as I can. Um, so this feature of contact allows me to basically get more of that bite of tissue than I otherwise could. But you're still limited by a tube. It, it's inserted in a tube, right? Correct. So you're still limited. Yeah. So everything we designed, that's another requirement we have in our design procedure. Um, the question was, you're limited by that tube. Yeah. The, the, when I 
push these things together, the whole cross section has to fit in the diameter of the tube. Yeah. So um, one of the things, nice things we can do with these computer simulations is easily change the material and see what effect that has on the performance of our design. We can make small changes in the geometry and see what effect that has. So that's what um, I've shown here. And the only thing I'll say about this is this zirconia ceramic material um, is much better than um, conventional materials that are used for surgical instruments like stainless steels. These are different stainless steel alloys here. So here are some results. Um, the material we're using is called zirconia. That's a ceramic. It arrives uh, in Jim Adair's lab as a powder. He takes that powder and mills it down to make the particles very, very, very small, like nanometer-sized particles. So this is where the nano comes in, um, into the project here. So the scale bar here is 500 nanometers. So you can see how small the particles are here, like tens of nanometer size, or ones of nanometer size particles. Here's our mold cavities made from the SU-8 photoresist. So we take this powder, put it in a slurry, fill the mold. We're actually using a squeegee to fill the molds, a thing you use to uh, clean your windshield at the gas station, <laughs> um, like that. So we rub the squeegee across here to fill the molds and remove any sort of excess material from the top. Then we center them and we get our parts. So here's our micro forceps and some close-ups here of our um, tool tip. You can see we've got some um, little bit of texture on our tool tip. So that allows us to increase our grasping capability or basically increasing the friction there. Um, and here is, this is one of our forceps arms and a close-up of the edge here. So this is where you can really see the benefit of um, using the nano particles. Since these parts are so small, the feature sizes on the parts are micrometers in size, so a thousandth of a millimeter in size. And we need to use a material with particle sizes in order of magnitude smaller than that. We can also um, get really nice sharp edges using these nanometer size particles. That's important when we're looking at making surgical instruments that um, if we're going to be doing like a scissor, say, for example. So here's our edge. The scale bar here is three micrometers, so we're getting basically one particle diameter size on our edge resolution, which is, um, which is a really nice feature for this application. This is my last slide, second to last. Um, we're working on right now um, fabricating, in quotes, big parts. So the parts that I showed you before were um, tens of micrometers on cross-section and micrometers long. The parts that we're trying to make now are hundreds of micrometers on cross-section and millimeters long. And um, this is one of our filled molds right here, our recent filled molds. So you can see here the sort of Y-shaped um, devices here. These are our forceps. We've got them here as kind of spokes in a wheel where we can fill the center of the wheel with our slurry and then force it out into the spokes to fill the molds. And um, we've got some sort of half pieces here of our forceps, just trying different ways to configure them and fill the molds. Um, we are expecting these this process to be refined enough that we get some parts we can try out in the next couple months. So this summer, we're going to be trying these things out in surgical simulations. So um, one of the things my colleague, who is a gastroenterologist, does, he, he um, has a buddy who's a butcher. He goes to his buddy and gets a freshly harvested pig stomach. The stomach of a pig is somewhat similar to the human stomach. And a freshly harvested stomach is going to be as close to a live stomach as you can get, right? And we try these things out. So we take our little instrument and we see, can it actually cut through the tissue of the pig's stomach? Can it actually dissect 
tissue. And then again, he's giving us this feedback that we then use to improve our designs um, before we go into the next step, which would be like live animal type of studies. Um, we're also looking at a multi, uh, developing kind of a multi-layer process so we can do 3D parts and looking at using different materials. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge my collaborators on this project. Um, Dr. Halleck, Snyder, and Matthew are at um, Hershey Medical Center, and Jim Adair, I mentioned. Um, the, these are the, some of the graduate students who have worked on this project, and they are really the ones doing all the work. Um, <laughs> and the funding sources, um, we've had some grants from a number of sources um, over the years that have supported this work. The NIH, the National Institutes of Health, is supporting this recent work on the nanoparticulate parts. That's all my slides. Thank you very much. <laughs> Any question? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a? Okay. So nano is ten to the minus nine. Right. So nano is ten to the minus nine. Micro is ten to the minus six. Milli is ten to the minus three. Yeah. So one one-thousandth is a millimeter. One one-thousandth of that is a micrometer. One one-thousandth of that is a nanometer. Yeah. Um, okay, so your question um, was about, are these used in robotic surgery? Yeah, there, um, there are already surgical robots, and um, some of the advantages to using a surgical robot would be for a procedure that does require this very, very small sort of fine manipulation that's so small that even the most highly skilled surgeon, the sort of natural tremor in your hand is big compared to the sort of fine work that you're trying to do. So a surgical robot um, is very um, expensive and requires a lot of space in a hospital um, that's sort of the downside to it. But the, the advantage to it is it can be used for these really, really small procedures that require very fine, precise work. And the robot doesn't get tired, so you can position the robot in one position and it can just stay there for however long you need to. Yeah. How closely can you match the effectiveness of single-task instruments by using multitask instruments? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the question is, how closely can you match the single-task instruments using the multifunctional instruments? Um, I, didn't, I didn't show, uh, I had a slide actually on that, and I took it out, but um, that's one of the things that we look at, is we compare our prototypes to commercially available instruments that are single-task instruments. When we go to the compliant designs, the amount of force that we can apply, say, with a forceps is lower than what we can apply with a hinged mechanism. And it's because we're introducing this flexibility. However, that's, um, we think we actually can get up above where we need to be in terms of the force, even though it's lower than a commercially available instrument, by doing this careful design and optimization. So the, um, the micro forceps that I showed you here, the rule of thumb is if we are looking at a one millimeter diameter instrument, we want the opening to be at least twice that. So we wanted the opening to be at least two millimeters. So we, that's a requirement also in our design that it's two millimeters or greater. So we're right at about two millimeters here. Yeah. Any question in the back? It's, it's no external incisions, is the incision less. And the, the reason for doing that is there's much less pain and risk of infection to the patient. So there are fewer pain receptors, many fewer pain receptors in your stomach wall than there are in the muscles of your abdominal wall. So um, there's, when you wake up, say, from your gallbladder removal, that you had done with the notes, you have no incisions at all, and you just go home the same day. 
You go home the same day also if you've had a laparoscopy, um, but, the, but the pain is less and the risk of infection is less with the notes. Yeah. Here. Is there a vacuum attached to suck up whatever you're cutting and excise? Um, no, but there are, in, there are you know, suction and irrigation instruments that can be used. Yeah, and those are some of the ones that get, I think on that diagram that I had, um, we had a suction irrigator on there. Yeah, yeah. Let me take one from over here, yeah. I assume that you have to have a robot business in your research here at Penn State to handle these small things, is that so? Um, no. <laughs> the question is, do you have to have a robot to handle these things? We have graduate students. <laughs> yeah. So for the really, really small ones, we actually have specially designed um, probes and manipulators, and we you know, have to work under a microscope to be able to manipulate them. The size that, we're kinda, that I showed on that last slide there, the one millimeter diameter size, they're big enough so you can see them with your eye and you can pick them up with a good pair of tweezers. Um, and that's really, they need to be big enough so that you can see them so the surgeons can use them and they can actually view them through um, the camera, the endoscopic camera. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, um, I think the question is about sort of depth perception using the camera. That's a big issue because um, using both the laparoscopic and endoscopic camera, the depth perception is actually not very good. And I think the the surgeons kind of just learn by experience kind of where they are. There have been some um, devices that have been developed that give a much better kind of 3D view but those devices aren't, aren't really widely used yet in hospitals. It's more kind of, you know, experience-based, getting that depth perception. Question here? Yeah, so um, it's visual. The, the camera is how do you determine, you know, where to put the tip of your endoscope, right? Um, now, there, and, and it's visual. Right now, um, notes, like I said, is sort of a new field. So there's, there are lots of live animal studies being done right now. Um, I sat in on one of those procedures at Hershey um, not too long ago where they were doing a procedure on a live pig. And it was so interesting to see, you know, the, the doc- they've never done this before, so you come out of the stomach and they, the doc- they're kind of disoriented, right? Because they know, they know, the docs know anatomy, of course, very well, but they've never sort of come at it from that point of view. So they would say, I think that's the spleen. No, well, I'm not sure, you know. So that, I found that really interesting. But um, again, it's, 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 you have to learn, the docs are going to have to learn um, sort of a, the anatomy from a different point of view. Um, now, there are other procedures, as you mentioned, that use ultrasound and or MRI to help guide. That's called image-guided surgery. Um, that there's another researcher here at Penn State that's actually developing an image-guided method for bronchoscopy. So bronchoscopy is similar where an, a, a bronchoscope or endoscope is inserted into the lungs and down into the branches of the lungs to, say, biopsy something that might be a tumor, right, in the lungs. And it's really, really hard in the lungs to um, know kind of which branch you're in. So they're developing um, image-guided procedures using MRI, and they have an actual virtual reality interface there, which is nice. That's not, I don't think, currently needed in the abdomen, um, but it is available for other types of procedures. Any question here? Do you need uh, general anesthesia for notes? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So laparoscopy and notes, um, I think as it is envisioned today, you would need general anesthesia. Yeah. Another question here? The design of your forceps uh, shows two sharp angles, two centers. Mm-hmm. Would the stresses be lower if those were smooth curves, or would that affect the stress relief? No, well, it depends on how smooth they are. So, so the question is, um, so here, we have small fillets in here. So, um, 
you know, you never want to have a very sharp corner, of course. But the reason we have this big angle here is, again, to get as big of a bite as we can on our opening. So, yeah, I mean, there's a real interplay here in how stiff I make this thing. If I make a big radius on here, it's going to stiffen it up, and it's not going to close as, as much. So... Um, that's you know kind of where our design and optimization procedures come in is looking at how do I change that angle, how do I change the width and the thickness and the lengths of those things to get it to open as much as possible and still not exceed our stress limit. Yeah, I'm glad we went back to that tool because I understand pushing the the thing forward and closing it. I have a German instrument that does the same thing for removing ticks. It has this beautiful little stainless steel device and um, it's wonderful because even doctors, if you go with a tick, they don't really have a good instrument for that. Uh, but I don't understand the scissor mechanism without, you know, kind of said that it works as a scissor. But how, how does it work? Are you turning the, um, the um, outside no cover. Right. It? it is. So um, let me flip back to this other one here. Yeah. So we move this forward to close the jaws, and then I twist it. I twist it there, and that causes my two jaws to shear in this plane. So they're coming together like this, and then when I twist it, they shear like this to get the scissoring. Um, I can show that video again. Maybe that might help, but um, so you'll see it'll come together here, and then this is twisted. Scissors open, twisted back, scissors closed. Then I pull it back to do the forceps. One thing that you can't see on here is I have um, we have a specially shaped cap on the end of that tube. That what we found is without the cap, when I twist it. So my things come together like this, and then I twist it, and they want to go like this. So I have a, a specially shaped cap to keep them aligned, so I get good shearing for my scissors. And one more quick question. What do you foresee as the future of this whole field? Of the... Say, 25 years. The field of, of notes, or... The no, yeah. The field of the nanotechnology and surgery and notes. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think um, right now that notes is being called the coming revolution in surgery. So the previous revolution was laparoscopy. So instead of doing you know, a big open incision, I could use tiny incisions and a little camera, right? Notes is being called the next revolution, so incisionless surgery. Um, in order for notes to advance, we need to have instruments that can be used with notes. So um, what I hope to envision <laughs> is that we can develop some of these instruments that would allow notes to, um, to you know, become widely accepted, widely used. Another interesting thing about notes that um, one of my colleagues at Hershey was telling me is today, you know, if you say you go into the ER... A doctor can look at your belly and look at the scars that you have from whatever surgeries you've had, and they can pretty much tell, like, oh, yeah, they've had an appendectomy, or, oh, yeah, you know, they've had gallbladder removed. But if notes takes off, then you lose that, right? So you come in, you have no incisions, they don't know, um, and you can't really tell from an x-ray. Um, so that brings up sort of other issues in terms of medical record keeping or how do you have some kind of visual cue to what, you know, procedures that you've had. So, so there are a lot of other issues that I think need to be resolved before that actually happens. Yeah. Use a tattoo. A tattoo. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> a question here? Uh, there are other institutions in the United States and Europe, Asia, doing research like this? Yeah, yeah. Are there other institutions working on it? Yeah, I mean, there, the field of nodes in the past two years has really generated a lot of excitement. So, um, you know, we've got folks, of course, at Penn State working on this, but other universities are working on it um, in the U.K. particularly. Um, and in some other countries, they are... Um, 
less conservative than we are in the U.S. about experimenting on human patients. So um, there have been, um, you know, there have there's been appendectomy and gallbladder removals done on patients on human patients in India um, successfully. Um, I'm not picking on India. That's just one of the examples. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there are lots of other groups working on this, and the the um, instrument manufacturers themselves, of course. Um, you know, in the university, one of the things that we like to do, of course, is really, you know, publish and widely disseminate the research that we're working on, whereas in companies, it's not the case. Um, so it's, um, yeah, so it's sometimes hard to tell exactly what industry is working on, but they are working on it. Yeah. And you had a question here. Is the use of general anesthesia more for the benefit of the surgeon than the patient in the notes procedures? Uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, is general anesthesia more for the benefit of the patient or the surgeon than the patient? Keeping the person quiet. Yeah. I mean, I think it is important that, um, you know, there's not, you're, the patient's not moving around, <laughs> especially, you know, when you're trying to kind of figure out where you are in the anatomy. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always risks with anesthesia. So, um, you know, kind of where that trade-off lies, I, I don't really know. A question here? How much does this cut down, like, uh, tissue uh, scarring and everything, then? Does this help uh, the patient for future surgeries? Yeah, I mean, that, that's also, a, that's a good question. That's a, that's a big issue as well. So scarring, um, one of the benefits to using notes, of course, is you wouldn't have any external scars. But it's not just cosmetic. It's, um, you know, scar tissue builds up in your abdominal wall from the incisions, which makes it difficult to do future procedures, as you say. Yes, yes. So it would be a big benefit from that point of view as well. Yeah. I think in the back. Do you have any sense, uh, if this were to reach a, a commercial level sometime in the future, how this would compare, the cost of this would compare to existing laparoscopic yeah. Um, I mean, the, the question is about what, if this eventually would become a commercial product, how would the cost compare to conventional instruments? I don't know exactly, but I, I will say that, um, you know, many of these laparoscopic instruments that are used today are disposable instruments. So they're made of plastic. The tooltips themselves are... Um, stainless or titanium, but the rest of it's plastic, and they're used for one procedure, and they're thrown out. So they need to be made pretty cheaply. Um, the, I think the reason that they are disposable is because the hospitals don't want to have to deal with re-sterilizing them. Um, it's kind of a pain in the neck, but it's also a liability to them to have to re-sterilize it. One of the benefits of this new manufacturing procedure that we're developing is that we can fabricate thousands of parts at a time and um, fairly inexpensively. So the goal would be to, to um, be able to do that in a, in a cost-effective manner, so in a, you know, comparable to a current disposable instrument. You know, whether exactly it gets there, I don't know yet. Yeah. But it isn't the cost really the surgeon's time in the hospital? Personnel. Yeah, I mean, th yeah, that that's a big issue, and that's another. The OR time itself, just staffing that room, is very very expensive in hospitals. So it's hundreds of dollars per minute in the OR. So these um, things that we can do to shorten procedure times with these multifunctional instruments are of interest to hospitals to shorten the OR time. I was wondering how you got interested in this field. It seems so remote from the way you started. From the, oh, <laughs> how did I get interested in it? Thanks. Um, yeah, um, you know, I kind of went the traditional mechanical engineering route, and then when I came to Penn State, um, I, I wanted to do something kind of medical-related, but I didn't know exactly what. But um, you probably know that Penn State invented one version of the artificial heart, and uh, several of my colleagues in mechanical engineering have worked on the artificial heart over the years. And they introduced me to some folks at Hershey. And um, 
I got to talking to them about, you know, what I was doing with compliant mechanisms, and we thought, hey, this might have some applications in surgery, and it just kind of went from there. Yeah. So I've just been kind of learning as I go on the, you know, on the medical side. Yeah. That was um, an experimental procedure. They're developing a technique at Hershey that they call tunneling. And it's a way to um, get out of the stomach that's sort of self-sealing. So what they do is the stomach wall is actually made up of different layers. So they make um, a very small incision in just the top layer of the stomach and then tunnel through the thickness of the stomach wall and then out at a different spot. And what they found is that, as I said, doing it this way, that incision in the stomach becomes sort of self-sealing so you don't have kind of this gaping hole from the stomach into the abdomen. Once they got out, they were just kind of looking around. That's it. (laughs) So what they do in these experimental procedures is uh, on pigs is, you know, after the procedure... They, I was told the pig was fine. <laughs> Later that day, he was completely fine. And, you know, after some time, they euthanized the pig and then um, autopsy the pig to see how does that incision in the stomach heal? Have there been any other complications? They, they've done about, um, I think, 17, 18 procedures on pigs at Hershey to date, and they've had no complications so far from the notes procedure. Generally, in stages for the patient's comfort, by the way. So they, they will tolerate either laparoscopy or uh, notes under it uh, without it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Any question here? Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, could you partner your technology with ablation technology, or is there a size constraint because of the ablation? Uh, ablation for zapping using kind of a heat energy to Yeah, perhaps. Um, You know, there there are um, devices like that that are used. Um, You know, like I said, you know, this sort of forceps scissors design was one we decided to focus on to get started because that's something that I thought we could do. But there are many other possibilities in terms of different instruments and different kind of combination instruments that we could look at. That's, we haven't yet looked at one like that, though. Two questions. If you have to sew up some tissue, uh, a whole, uh, an incision to be closed, or if you have to get rid of material that may be floating around that is undesirable, um, how small can you get? Yeah, how do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked that question about sewing it up because um, I have as one of my backup slides an instrument that we've designed to do that. Um, I'll show that just quickly. Here. Um, This is a a suturing instrument that is, we designed this for a three millimeter diameter working channel, um, flexible endoscope. This, um, you can see the suture needle here. This is a suture thread. And this is a pig stomach, as I mentioned. Um, This is my colleague, Dr. Matthew, trying it out. And you can see we can place a suture on there. So this thing, three millimeter diameter size, is actually fairly big for some of the things we're envisioning. We were able to um, fabricate this using sort of conventional, not easily, but but conventional fabrication techniques. But... um, as you point out, if you have to remove, say you have to remove the gallbladder, you need to have a, a, you know, some size of a channel to pull it out. What's done currently in laparoscopy, say for gallbladder removal, the gallbladder is pretty squishy. So you can, what they do is they actually remove it through the largest incision, which is um, maybe 12 millimeters in diameter, where the scope is. So that's the last thing to come out. The scope is pulled out and then the gallbladder. Um, so in the notes as well, you know, it would have to be um, sort of grabbed by, once you get all the connective tissue removed, grabbed by your instrument, and then pulled out that incision through the stomach. So it's going to have to be at least, I don't know, maybe that big. <laughs> Any question here? Yeah. 
Have you patented any of these procedures or processes? Yeah, we have. We've patented the um, the earlier device that I showed you, the forceps scissors, and we have a patent pending on this device here. Yeah. Question. Has the material, this zirconia that you're using, become kind of the standard, or is there research also going on, you know, with different material? Um, has the zirconia become the standard? No. Um, you know, this is the standard right now is stainless steel or titanium. So, you know, the material choices that you have are pretty limited because it has to be biocompatible, of course, and sterilizable. Um, the, so the, typically the stainless and the titanium are used. The zirconia is a material that we think with this proper design, we can use it as well. Um, we may be able to also um, coat the zirconia parts if we find out that the um, zirconia itself, there's some problem with leaching, for example. Um, but it's, no, it's not yet the standard. Hopefully it will become the standard. Yeah. <laughs> question here, Sarah. Who's the instrument tied the knot? Okay. So um, this instrument, yeah, I didn't really explain how it works here. It basically acts like a little sewing machine. So I have my suture needle here on one side, and there's what's called a needle locking arm. That there's a fork in the end of it that engages the a little notch in the needle. And I can close my device so the needle's in between, and I slide back one of the needle locking arms, slide the other one forward so that fork engages it. And so then I'm holding the needle on the other side. Um, I might have a slide that shows that. Yeah. So you can see it here. Here's the needle on one side, and here's the needle on the other side. So, um, so you can tie, you can throw a stitch and tie a knot this way. Now, one of the, um, so you can tie, you can throw a stitch and tie a knot this way. Now, one of the um, important features of this design is that it can be used to place multiple sutures. So there are um, some other devices that have been developed to do suturing, and they're big and bulky. They actually do what's called piggybacking on the scope. So they are used on the outside of the scope with little clips attached onto the scope. And they can place one stitch. Then they have to be removed and reloaded. Um, we've come up with some unique needle designs in here that will allow us to place multiple stitches. And um, let me see if I have a picture of that. Not really. Um, but I can describe it. Um, what we have in here is a notch in the needle. So there's actually um, sort of a U-shaped slot in there that will allow the suture thread to be removed from the needle. So it can be removed, snipped, reloaded to then place another stitch and tie another knot. So the surgeons are actually really good at sewing with these things right already today. Um, so they can, you know, put the needle in, pull it back with the other side, turn it around, and so on. Um, and um, so I, we think that this technique of having this sort of slotted needle that will allow the suture material to be um, withdrawn and inserted will work for them. Linda, please join me in thanking Dr. Trevor. Ah, cool. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.